everybody, this is David Dwight, Senior Pastor at Hope Church RVA, and you're listening to the Hope Sermons Podcast. I'm excited about our current series called More Than Words, a 90-day overview of the entire Bible. Thanks for joining us as we learn more about God, ourselves, and how He's redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. Good morning, everybody. Good morning if you're joining us online. We're glad that you are with us through technology. So I'll tell you what I'd like to do. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand and pray with me. So we're moving through this 90-day flyover of the Bible, and it requires certain movements on Sunday mornings because we've got a certain number of weeks to cover 66 books. So this week, we're taking a bit of a jump. If you're here and you're really paying close attention to that 90-day Bible plan, you're going to be like, whoa, we kind of jumped ahead a little bit. That's true, but I'm trying to keep us moving through the weeks that we've got on Sundays. So this morning, what I'm really going to talk about is this whole idea of kings in Israel. There's a subtext to the story of the kings, and the subtext is how our hearts are so prone to be devoted to people, things, causes as our high devotions and take our hearts away from God. That's kind of the subtext. So I really wanted to just take a minute and pray and take a minute. We don't do this very often at Hope. Uh, Take a minute to just have silent prayer to confess our hearts to God. So will you stand and join me? And I'll begin praying, and then I'm just going to leave some space for you to talk to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come into your presence today and we are so, so grateful. So grateful that you are God and we are not. So grateful that you are the Lord of all and we are not, which also means and we don't have to try to be. And so, Lord, we come into your presence this morning. We also know that you are beautiful, perfect, holy, and that your glory is the essential core of experience and existence. And if your glory is diminished, then experience and dignity is diminished. And, Father, we just want to stand in your presence and say to you what you know and we know is true, that we ask you to forgive us of our sin those things that other people may see or know about us and those things that other people may never see or know, but that you do. And in a sense, Lord, we want to come into your presence through the grace of Jesus Christ to set the record straight, to clean the pipes, that our relationship with you is fluid. And in confessing, Lord, we ask you to run the streams of living water through those pipelines of our heart. So now, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you come into our presence, cleanse us, and give us that full celebration of forgiveness and adoption as sons and daughters. And speak to us now as we seek you in your word. Through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. 
So it was just about a year ago that my mom passed away, and I feel like I've been around a fair amount of death in the last 10 years, and it is what it is, and learning to seek God and to come closer to Him and His presence and the hope that we have in Him has been meaningful. If you could say it, mom's death was graceful and even beautiful. And our family were able to be with her in her last days. All of us gathered around her. Now, here's a little inside scoop about mom. Mom had this love for the British monarchy. (laughs) Mom had this fascination, even devotion, for the royal family and all that comes with it. And I could go on and on about what she was drawn to and what she liked and things we would talk about and things that made me smile and sometimes laugh. I know that I'm an American and I know that I don't see the monarchy and the British traditions the way a Brit would. But talking to my mom about some of the stuff that she found so remarkable would just, frankly, kind of make me smile. And I know that if you're British, it's a really big deal. But I'm not British, and it makes me smile. (laughs) So in in my mom's last days, her energy level, it's hard to explain, and I don't have a real medical description for it, but I've got a practical one. It's as though her strength was like your phone battery, and it was losing about 15% each day, and there would be no recharging of it. It's pretty much about the way it went in those last days. So each one of those days, we'd be with her, and each day would go on, and, and her strength would diminish a little bit, and conversations began to have a little less strength, and her voice began to be more of a whisper. And... The mail would come or a package would be delivered at the door and one of us would go out to get it. And, you know, we'd say, Mom, you know, the mail's here. Do you want to look through it? And she'd say something like, you know, what's in it? And we would describe it and most of it was kind of ordinary stuff. She'd she'd say, no, you take care of it. And this kind of happened each day when the mail arrived. Well, after a couple days went by, she was kind of down to a whisper and the mail had arrived, and my sister got the mail, and she brought it in. And she said, Mom, the mail's here. Do you want to see it? And Mom sort of said, with her eyes closed, what's in it? And Jody said, well, mostly it's ordinary, but uh, the new edition of Majesty Magazine just arrived, Mom. <laughs> and Mom said, oh? <laughs> I want to see that. And she reached for it. And I was thinking, I didn't even know there was such a thing as Majesty Magazine. (laughs) And this has opened my eyes to a whole media world of royal media and magisterial scuttlebutt. (laughs) So it made me smile. I'm like, Mom, how long have you had a subscription to Majesty Magazine? (laughs) Well, royalty tends to fascinate us in a host of different ways. But royalty is a complicated affair. And I think we'll look through some scriptures and see how that tends to be. Let me read from Judges, a short verse, and then Samuel. And I'm just trying to lay a little groundwork here. In Judges, 
The Bible says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Those were not the good days. If you're a person who's prone to nostalgia and always think the, the old days were the good old days, those were not the good old days. When everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes are not good days. This becomes a complicated mess of competing ideologies and devotions and lawlessness and the whole bit. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, 1 Samuel 8. Samuel has been this leader of Israel, kind of a prophet, judge, leader, and he's getting old. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Okay, so we come to this moment and the people of Israel are saying, give us a king so we can be like all the nations around us. And if you're reading through the sweep of the Bible, you will see that this matter is a constant challenge for God's people. How do we stay devoted in the distinct character and devotion of who our God is in a surrounding world and culture, cultures that may not agree with that, that may disagree, even more pejoratively may say that's a bunch of religious nonsense. How do we stay faithful to this God while living in this larger mixture? This was a huge challenge for Israel. You see it mentioned through and through in the Old Testament. It's a challenge that remains for God's people today. What Israel tended to do was syncretize. That is, take their religion, their faith in God, but incorporate a bunch of other stuff from the culture too, blend it together so they could kind of straddle and live in both worlds. This too is a great challenge. It's all part of this complicated scenario. But here's the thing. They're saying, give us a king so we can be like all the other people. In other words, all these other little nation states and tribes had these kings and chiefs, and they're saying, give us a king so we can be like them. When God's people are saying, we just want to be like the people around us, this is not a good day. It's not a good day for God's people. It's not a good day for the glory of God or for the dignity and well-being of human beings. But this was the premise, and they said, give us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Note what happens after that. This displeased Samuel. Different versions say, say things like, this, this hurt him. And I could understand why. But note when he goes to talk to God about it and he prays about it, note God's own heart in this. God says to Samuel, don't take this personally. It's not you they're rejecting. It's me they're rejecting. That kind of personal revelation of God, that kind of sense of seeing into his heart, we don't see that too much, particularly in the Old Testament. But like God feels their rejection when they give themselves 
to another as highest, as king. And this will be a long-standing challenge for Israel and for God's people and for us. All right, so let's take a little journey through the early history of the kings of Israel. The first one was Saul. Saul was kind of a nervous, anxious, timid person with ego insecurities, which led him at certain junctures of his leadership to disobey God. When Saul was being introduced to the people of Israel as the new king, you have this moment. There is no royal history yet, but it is the reveal, a.k.a. coronation, as minor league as it may have been back then. And Saul is getting ready to be introduced to the people. It's almost like a little drum roll, you know. Here's your king, Saul. Here's your king, Saul. Nowhere to be found. Here's your king, Saul. The scripture says Saul was hiding behind a wagon of baggage. Okay, so this does not appear to me to be a really good indicator of a leader's potential to take leadership that when he's going to be introduced as the leader, actually he's hiding. He'd rather not be introduced to the leader, ostensibly to come out and to say some encouraging leadership-like words to the people. They can't find him, but they find him hiding behind some baggage. So Saul is, is a kind of anxious, timid guy with ego insecurities. Well, next you have David. <clears throat> David is a warrior. He is passionate. He's devoted to God. And he's honorable in most categories of his life. But to call truth, truth, David's passion spilled over to dishonorable behavior. At one point, He took a woman who he found attractive. He brought her into his bedroom, and he arranged to have her husband murdered through what looked like a battlefield casualty, but David arranged it. David's family was really messy. When it came time for David to pass the baton of leadership, the mess between some of his sons doesn't go well for a while. Abijah, Adonijah, and Solomon are all arguing and debating about who's going to become the next king. The succession endeavor is kind of a train wreck. Here's the thing about David. David sinned boldly, and he repented honestly. He was a warrior king, who was a remarkable poet, songwriter, artist, an incredible combination of traits and capabilities. Then you get to Solomon. And Solomon's who I'm going to talk about most for the purposes this morning. I think Solomon is the most enigmatic of these kings. He is incredibly wise, remarkably insightful. I think you would say he was brilliant, He absolutely, you read about him and some of the insights and judgments 
and brilliance that he had, you would just say he's brilliant. He was very rich. He became very rich. He was quite self-interested. When you read a little bit about Solomon, you find out in 1 Kings 6 that Solomon built God's temple and it took him seven years to build it. Incredible, ornate, beautiful, remarkable. The next sentence says, however, it took Solomon 13 years to build his own palace. So you're like, okay, wait, so you're building this temple, this devotion to God, and it is remarkable and ornate and beautiful, and it takes seven years to build it, and when it's finished, it's stunning, it's breathtaking. Okay, great. Then Solomon begins to build his palace, and it takes almost twice as long to build his palace as it takes to build a temple for God. You start raising an eyebrow. You start wondering, what's going on with that? Solomon, in all his brilliance and all his wealth, it's not so much what you see in his life that gets my attention. It's what I don't see in his life that gets my attention. I don't see this kind of pure, dedicated devotion to God in Solomon's life. He's brilliant. He gets really rich. But this devotion piece seems to be missing. David, for all his faults and shortcomings, he does not have a missing devotion piece. So you look at these guys, Saul, David, Solomon, nervous, anxious, timid, a warrior, but a guy who took a woman into his bed, had her husband murdered. And then this other guy who's wise and insightful, but really gives his own wealth and position more attention than God's. Can you, like, can you believe it? Like, you look at these are the kings of Israel, can you believe it? Yeah, I can believe it. I can definitely believe it. Why? These guys are the kings. They're supposed to be, they're supposed to be what? What are they supposed to be? Because they're human beings. They're human beings like we are human beings. Yeah, but they're kings. They're supposed to be. Yeah, you know what I think? I think we're like them and they're like us. They're human. And they get into these positions which in various ways begin to separate them from being a normal human being a person just like us. And it's amazing the implications of this. See, here's the thing. I think most of us, if we're honest, however devoted to God you may be, we still struggle with other devotions. We have other highests. We have other people. We have other things. It may be an athlete who's like, your devotion. It may be a celebrity who you're fascinated with and devoted to. It may be some beautiful person, an actress or an actor that you're devoted to. It may be a Bible teacher or a pastor that you're devoted to. So the people of Israel say, give us a king. We want to be just like those other people. So 
When you read Deuteronomy 17, it's fascinating. Again, one of the million benefits of this 90-day read-through, I'm noticing stuff I've not noticed before. You're all having the same experience. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God is talking to Moses. This is long before we ever get to Samuel or the kings. And he's talking to Moses in Deuteronomy 17. He says, when you enter the land your God's given you and you've taken possession of it, and you say, the people of Israel say, let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. And then he gives some criterion of what the king should be. This is a long, long time he's speaking to Moses before we ever get to the kings. This is a prophetic insight of God. He says, don't place a foreigner as king. It's got to be an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt. He must not take many wives or his heart may be led astray, and he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So there's really four criteria. Got to be an Israelite, not acquire great numbers of horses, not take many wives, and not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Solomon was successful on the first one. He was an Israelite. When you look at the rest of the criterion, it's as though Solomon was a recalcitrant teenager whose parents said, just do these four things. And because of the recalcitrance in his heart, he's like, I'm doing the opposite of what you're telling me to do. You tell me what to do, I'll do the opposite of it. So God has told the people of Israel through Moses, should be an Israelite, don't pursue great horses. This is wealth, you don't understand. Don't take many wives and don't accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Solomon, we're told, in 1 Kings 4, had 12,000 horses. In 1 Kings 11, we're told he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Okay. And he also received 25 tons of gold a year in revenues. 25 tons of gold a year in revenues. And ultimately, the kingdom of Israel divided over his taxation policies. If you were thinking that never happened back then, you were mistaken. So here's, here's the thing. 12,000 horses, 700 wives of royal birth, the Bible says. All right, so let's get a little clarity on this. If you're thinking Solomon, 700 wives, 300 concubines, this guy's like a sex addict, that's not really what this is about. The 700 wives of royal birth is about alliances with the neighboring nation states. The royal birth thing means they came from the royal families of all of the surrounding nation states. And this was a common practice to secure peace between the nations. Because if you're a king over here in a neighboring nation state, but your daughter is my wife, it sort of secures certain parameters and practices for peace, for economic trade, for open relations. So this is way less about marriage, and it's way more about geopolitical issues. But I know, I know, you can read it and ask this question, which is a reasonable one, because there's a bunch of places in the Bible where these people have numerous wives. And you can ask yourself, why, why doesn't God prohibit that? I think God allows it, which is a very different thing than he endorses it, he allows it. But it doesn't really need its own prohibitions because the emotional fallout that happens in these situations 
are their own consequential lessons. Anytime you look at one of these scenarios where one of these guys has a lot of wives, it is a train wreck and a mess of emotional discord, jealousy, anger, unhappiness. It makes perfect sense, right? We could say, hey, guys, you should have seen that coming. <laughs> but they didn't, and it was a different day. But the pain and the fallout of it is remarkable. The question again is, Saul, David, Solomon, can you believe it, these guys? Yep, I can. I can because I think we're like them. It's so easy for our hearts to get devoted to other people, to other things, to other distractions. I remember when I was in college, I bought my first car, like the first one that I bought. I was a third of three kids, so in my family, I always got the cars that went down through two sibling generations before I got them. Basically, by the time I got them, they were junk. So this is what I drove, and by the time I got to college, I'm like, I'm going to rise up above my circumstances, and I'm going to earn money, and I'm buying a car, and not a used car. I've had it with used cars. I'm buying a new car. So I saved money, saved money. I was working in college, saved money, saved money, and I was going to buy a new car. Okay, so the only new car I could afford was the cheapest car that was available for sale in the world. <laughs> and so I bought a two-door Nissan Sentra, standard shift on the floor, that had no extras, until about a week before I put the order in, it was about 106 degrees in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I thought, I'm going to splurge for the air conditioning. <laughs> so I did, and I went, and I bought the car, and I drive it off the parking lot. I swear this thing was a Maserati. <laughs> and I get on the highway to start driving back toward Chapel Hill, I get about a mile down the highway, and a rock flies off the truck in front of me and hits my windshield. And the windshield starts breaking. And I had simultaneous thoughts. The first one was, no! And the next one was, thank you, Lord, for not allowing this to become an idol in my life. Now you're thinking, how in the world can a two-door Nissan Sentra become an idol in anyone's life? <laughs> It's not the thing, friends, it's our hearts. It's hard to be royal. You can read about it. To sustain celebrity and that kind of position as mortal human beings is really hard to do. And the track records show it. The lives in these, these guys' lives, these kings we're talking about, their kids, their families, the track records show it. They are so messy. Mom's Majesty magazine gives us insights about Harry and Meghan and William and Kate and Charles and Camilla and now Andrew, and it's really hard, hard to be royal. So why did God say to Moses, when the people ask you for a king, he is not to accumulate wealth, he is not to take many wives, because he's a normal human being. And if he's going to be king, the only possible way this has a hair's chance of working is if every precaution is taken to make sure 
that he is a normal human being. You give him a palace, you give him a bunch of money, you let him gain a lot of wealth, he's going to see himself as different than everybody else, and everybody else is going to see him as different. And he's going to begin to think he's better, and they're going to begin to idolize him. You're like, man, can you believe that happened back then? Yeah, I can, because we do it all the time. We create this. We create this with our celebrities and our athletes and our actors and actresses. They're more or less our royal families. And when you do a little research on this, which I've done recently, I learned some really interesting things. First of all, when we get fascinated with these famous people, the psychological and emotional reality is like a drug in our brains. When we connect with the inspirations of what we see in these people and we begin to sort of imagine what their lives are like, imagine what it would be like to be them, there is a chemical reaction that happens in our brain, similar to drugs. What we do is we begin to make attachments to these people, and they're kind of dream attachments. And then they begin to become kind of devotions. And I learned a psychological term that I never heard before. It's called parasocial relationships happen. Parasocial relationships happen. What is that? Well, I think it's the American version of the royal infatuations where we give our emotions and our interest and then our devotions to these people who are famous, whether they're celebrities or athletes or presidents or whomever they are, and we begin to be fascinated with them and we learn more about them and we learn more about them, we read about them, we check them out on social media, and you actually sort of begin to believe you have a relationship with them. The parasocial part, which sounds to me like paranormal part, is that you actually have this richly now constructed emotional construct with them and they've never met you. And like it could be so disheartening because if you saw them in public, you would feel that you're close to them. But they have zero of any of that. They don't know who you are. They've never met you. They've never met me. And they call this parasocial relationships. We become attached to them, emotionally connected, when they've never met us. You see the point. The discordance of the emotional energy and the relational connectedness is where this parasocial phenomenon rolls out. So Daniel Borston is a writer who writes around this area, and he says, the hero is distinguished by their achievement, the celebrity by their image. The celebrity is the person well-known for their well-knownness. Okay, wait, what? The celebrity is someone who's well-known for their well-knownness. Well, wait, that feels like a little bit of a smoke and mirrors routine. Like, no, what are they well-known for? Like, what do they do? What do they accomplish? What kind of heroics? What kind of courage? None of that. They're well-known for being well-known. And we get on the bandwagon and get fascinated with their well-knownness. You see, the point is our hearts. This is the point. Our hearts are what all of this kingship stuff is all about. So I'm going to do a closing little move through some scripture texts to try to give an understanding here. In 1 Kings 11, as Solomon grew old, it says, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart wasn't fully devoted to the Lord as God as the heart of David his father had been. 
On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. This is like the closing chapter on Solomon's life, this brilliant man. And what's the closing curtain on his life? He builds shrines to these horrible gods of these surrounding people. His wives led him to this. There's only one hill east of Jerusalem. Do you know what it is? It's the Mount of Olives. There's only one hill east of Jerusalem. It's the Mount of Olives. So on the Mount of Olives, Solomon, in the greatest expression of disobedience that you could as a Jewish king, built high places to these detestable foreign gods. Okay, stay with me and see if you can track the thread. Zechariah 9.9, Old Testament prophet Zechariah, is speaking a prophetic message about Israel's king one day. And it says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Yet, he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Turn the clock ahead a number of hundreds of years, and we get Luke 19. As Jesus was now approaching the path down to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It was the night that Jesus was betrayed when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. Can't be more than 100 yards, might have been the same spot where Solomon built these altars to these false gods. Where Solomon, Israel's richest king, expressed the greatest disobedience by giving his heart away to these other gods. Jesus knelt and prayed when the prospect of the cross was in front of him. And he said, Father, if it be possible to take this cup from me, may there be another way, but not my will, thine be done. Israel's king of kings was of the most humble of circumstances. And on that hill east of Jerusalem, he prayed the prayer of the highest obedience that could ever be prayed. So when Jesus was crucified on that Friday, we're told in Matthew, a sign was fastened above his head on that cross announcing the charge against him. Note the charge. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus, the king of the Jews. Note the irony that it's an accusation that led to his crucifixion. But in the redemptive power of God, the accusations of the accusers become the affirmations of the saints who do indeed declare this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. You see, there's a big, massive king shift going on. And Jesus fit all those criteria that God spoke to Moses those many, many hundreds of years ago. He came most humble like us. He becomes the king of Israel. So a friend mentioned recently that he was noting that Ben Roethlisberger's Last play in his home field at Heinz Field. If you don't know who Ben Roethlisberger is, famous quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, had his last game at home after a long, illustrious career. And the last play of his last game on his home field was taking a knee. And you would think, well, wait a minute, the last play of this illustrious career, you want it to be an 80-yard touchdown pass. The crowd goes crazy and the game is won. That's not what happened. After all these years of a professional football career, Ben Roethlisberger's last play was taking a knee. 
And he was asked about that. And they said, Ben, how does it feel that your last play was taking a knee? And Ben said, if you're a quarterback, taking a knee is your favorite play. Because it means the game's been won, and there's only a second or two to go before time is up. Sorry, this happened to me at A2. I promise you I don't try to do this. In Philippians 2, Jesus, the most humble, who humbled himself, became man. It says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, everyone should take a knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. I think taking a knee is not only a quarterback's favorite play, it's every Christian's favorite play. Because it'll happen when the game's been won and there's only a second or two left on the clock. You may know that in ancient times when a king was using transportation, there were three forms. He either rode on a horse or was pulled in a chariot or he rode on a donkey. And it was well known that if you came on a donkey, you were coming in humility and peace. But if you came on a horse, you were coming triumphal in battle. So Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And in Revelation 19, we have this picture. Then I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. And its rider is called Faithful and True. With righteousness he judges and wages war. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And he has, a name he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. And it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And everyone will take a knee. Let's pray. Father, could you help us bring our hearts more truly and purely to you? We're sorry for our wandering devotions. And we're, we're stupid for wandering devotions, Lord, honestly, because they diminish you, they diminish us, and they're not what we thought. Would you help us to the fullness of who you are? Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.